All right. Hey, we're in 1 Thessalonians. We are starting a brand new book of the Bible today. So let me kind of catch you up to speed. What is this? Why are we doing this? Uh, last week, we just finished going through the book of 2 Corinthians. We spent about six or seven months walking through 2 Corinthians. Paul, the big part of the theme was that you and I are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old things have passed away. God is making all things new. And so we kind of walk this book as just a new way to live, a new way to do life. Uh, in 2021, the start of this year, as we're praying over this year, uh, a big part of it was like, Lord, you just want to be spiritually healthy. We want to make sure like our walk with you is vibrant. It's living. That we're not faking it. We're not going through the motions. And so we kind of looked at 2021 as just a year to get spiritually healthy. Now, we're, we're finishing up this year by starting and, and walking through 1 Thessalonians because the church of Thessalonica was very different than the church at Corinth. Corinth, as we know, was a pretty messed up church that Paul loved, that Paul called to repentance, that Paul worked with. The opposite is kind of true with Thessalonians where, like, they're just all in. They're excited about their faith. They're actually a pretty healthy spiritual, uh, church. Like spiritually speaking, they are a healthy church. Paul is just encouraging them. Paul is affirming them. Paul is basically saying this, and here's the theme of, of our book. Paul is just saying, continue to walk worthy. Like you guys are doing it. You're doing a good job. Walk worthy. Keep walking worthy. Our hope is to finish out this year and just finish strong. We want to finish well. We want to walk worthy of the calling which God has given us. And so Corinth was like, hey, let's find a new way to live. Let's spiritually detox a little bit. Now this is like, good job. Thessalonians, good job. Keep it up. Keep going. Walk worthy. Listen, this is a healthy church. Uh, the, the church of Thessalonica was a healthy church. My, my hope is as we talk about this, we kind of ask some big questions. Like, what is this? What is church? Why do we exist? Why do we do this? Why do Christians gather every week? Why do we do small groups? Why do we do outreach? Like, why do we do this? What's the point of this? How do we be like Jesus? Um, why does this matter so much? You know, Paul really pulls out some big themes here for the Thessalonians. And so our hope is to have a church like this that we can be like. Like we want to be spiritually healthy. This is a great model church for us. So it's different than the church of Corinth. Paul actually is in Corinth writing the book of Thessalonians. And so we jump from Corinth to Thessalonians, because I think Paul was in Corinth, kind of walking through the struggles. He's like, oh man, I miss those Thessalonians. Let me write them a letter. And so he's in Corinth writing this book. And again, this is, a, I just think, a church that we can learn from. So we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, starting a brand new book. Uh, we're actually going to do the whole chapter today, all 10 verses. Can you believe it? Um, we're going to fly through this. You're like, wow, the pace is so fast. I know, I know. Um, 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be in chapter 1, verse 1. Let's just read through through it. Very, very powerful text today. Paul starts off like he does in every book with just an intro. He says, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Can you tell there's already a different tone in this book than the, uh, Corinthians? We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us, and of the Lord, 
For you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, which is also Corinth. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I want to say amen. Amen. That's a great part to say amen. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's just pray, invite the Lord as we just start this book, as we kind of want to finish the year well to walk worthy like the Thessalonians. Father, we just want to thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. God, we thank you for this example. Jesus, we just ask that you'd speak and move that, again, this would be so much more than just us studying the Bible as much as, God, you'd write your word, write this word right now on our hearts. God, that this would not just be about information, but that we'd have a deep revelation of you, Jesus, that we too would be like the Thessalonians, where we're waiting for your son. We turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Lord, I just want to thank you for our people here. Bless them, speak to them. Jesus, I ask that you would just accomplish your work in us, your way in us, that we'd be a loving community, a community desperate for your Holy Spirit, a community that actively serves you and seeks you, that we repent often and forgive often, that, God, we would just um, be the church you have for us. We thank you again your name. Amen. The great Canadian philosopher, Drake, once said, everyone <laughs> dies, but not everyone lives. Now, I know that's not a very original, that thought, but everyone dies, not everyone lives. Uh, what does it mean to truly live? What does it mean not just to go through kind of the process, mundane things of life, but to actually really be alive, like to make the most of every moment. How do we not fake it? I think it's really easy. If you've been a follower of Jesus for a short period of time or a long period of time, I think it's very easy, even after weeks, to kind of go on autopilot. Kind of just go, this is what we do. How do we actually like, fully live and, and live out and express our Christian faith? What does it look like? How do we know we're not faking it? How do we become like the real deal? You know, in 1985, the, the uh, Getty Museum in L.A., it actually bought this uh, statue for $10 million, this statue that they thought was from like 560 BC. It was unearthed, it was discovered, and they thought, wow, we have an original piece. So they spent $10 million on, I think it was called the, the Getty Kuros. They spent $10 million on this statue here, only to find out, and we had to show just the upper half, uh, only to find out <laughs> just after a few months of historians and uh, different archeologists coming in to say, this is not an original piece. There's no way this is an original piece. Actually, as they studied it, they looked like there's different pieces kind of attached to it from different time periods that even just the whole thing itself must have been a pretty new piece. And so for like a year or two, they displayed this just with a lot of pride. Like, look what we found. Like, look at this. This is old. This is about 2,600 years old. So it, it's actually stayed there for quite some time. They just removed it from the museum in 2018. But for about 30 years, listen to this, they hung next to the statue a sign, and it says either, about this, this sculpture here, either from 560 BC or a total fake. That's what it said. 
either from 560 BC or a total fake. They're like, you know what, we'll just leave it up there. I mean, we don't, you know, some people think it's real, some people think it's not real. We're okay with kind of leaving the sign in front of it. See, Paul was not content to let the Thessalonians kind of be in that place of like either you're the real deal or maybe you're not. There's something about this. I think some of us are kind of content with that. Like, I don't, I don't know. You know, Paul, again, he's not content with this. Yes, we want to know, like, are, am I, are you, are we really, follow, are we true and genuine and authentic followers of Jesus or are we just faking it? I think so much of the, the world that kind of looks at the church and says, you're just playing games. You're just messing around. Do you really believe this? Why does your life look no different than our lives? Why is there no power in your life? Why is there no difference in your marriage? Why is there no, no difference in your day-to-day life? Like, what's the difference between a follower of Jesus and the world? And the world kind of looks on and says, there's really no difference. You actually maybe have lower standards or lower values. And so how do we know we're the real deal? Like, I want to unpack this. The title today simply is The Real Deal. And we want to know, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? Paul is basically saying, you guys are the real deal. We can't stop thanking God for you. I mean, you guys get it. And then he kind of walks through some identifying marks of them being the real deal. So we'll walk through that. But before I jump into that, I kind of can't. Because whenever you start a new book of the Bible, we like to ask this question, maybe remember, but we always ask, uh, author, audience, agenda. Who's the author? Who's the audience? What's the agenda? Whenever you start a new book of the Bible, we want to know that. So Paul, we know, look at verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Silvanus is another word for Silas. Silas was a co-worker of Paul. Timothy was kind of like that son of the faith being raised up by Paul. We know that the author, Paul, was radically changed by the gospel of Jesus. He went from persecuting Christians, murdering Christians, to preaching the gospel of Jesus. We know it's Paul, it's Silas, it's Timothy. And then he goes on, the audience is to the Thessalonians. So let's talk about the Thessalonians for a second. Who are they? Uh, Thessalonica, actually today, it's just called Thessaloniki. You can see it. Even in modern day, like Greece, uh, this is in the city of, or in the, the, for us, the modern country of Greece. Uh, This is the second largest modern city in Greece. This was the largest city of their day. A very popular city. A city that housed a lot of Jews and Romans and, and eventually Christians. But a very diverse city. A wealthy city. A lot of commerce was done there. This was actually, it's called, you know, Thessalonica or Thessaloniki. It's basically called, this the idea comes from this idea of Therma. There's hot springs in the area. Alexander the Great actually named this city after his half-sister later on, kind of changed it in that way. But there's a lot of history there. And we, we see that Paul's writing to the people, pretty diverse. We actually see the origin of this church plant in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 17, we see Paul go there and plant this church. So I just want to read it because I want you to see like how this church started, how it was birthed. In Acts 17 verse 2, we'll throw the verses up here. Acts 17 verse 2, it says, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths. So he's in the temple in Thessalonica. For three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preached to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas for three Sabbaths. So some believe he's there for like three weeks, or maybe up to five weeks. But for about three weeks, Paul's preaching the gospel. Many were persuaded. Many believed. Actually, many didn't believe. A riot broke out in the city from Paul's preaching. Actually, here's what they said in Acts 17, verse 6. Acts 17, verse 6, it says, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. This was Paul's reputation. Wherever Paul went, it seemed that he turned the world upside down, or what we would say is right side up. It's like, now they've come here. They've come to Thessalonica. A riot breaks out. They actually go to this guy Jason's house, pull him out. There's beatings. There's accusations. Paul has to like split and leave. So a lot of people believe that Paul is now writing this really to just affirm his love for them. So here's Paul. 
He's writing this letter to the, Thessalon- the Thessalonians. I mean, after three weeks, a revival breaks out. I love this because God can do a lot in three weeks. I love how a revival breaks out. This church is planted. Paul actually sent Timothy to lead this church for a period of time. Timothy was the pastor primarily in Ephesus, but leaves Ephesus, and he's pastoring this church now for a little while. Paul loves the Thessalonians. God did a great work in a very short amount of time. And so they, we have the author, we have the audience, now the agenda. Here, here's why he's writing this again. Paul had to peace out. He had to leave pretty quickly. And Paul's like, hey, I want you to know I love you. I'm just reaffirming my love for you. Don't think I left because I don't love you. Actually, just to save my life, really. But Paul is writing this to, one, just affirm his love. Two, to correct some bad doctrine. There are some people when it came to death and end times, they weren't sure, like, is Jesus going to come again? Did we miss the coming of Jesus? There is, Thessalonians is kind of known as like the book that deals with end times. It does, not maybe as, as in-depth as we might think it does, but it does to an extent deal with the question of like what happens next. You know, I love what Warren Wearsby said about that. When it comes to end times, he says, the doctrine of the Lord's return is not a toy to play with or a weapon to fight with, but a tool to build with. Obviously, when it comes to just eschatology or the study of end times, there's a lot of different ideas of when this will take place, how this will take place, you know, to what extent, what will this look like? There's a lot of different ideas and beliefs within just the Christian body of Christ. And I love Wearsby's heart. He's saying, listen, the whole idea of the coming of Jesus, it's not so we can be at odds with each other, fight, my way is the right way. The whole idea is like, how do we build each other up? in this? How do we have this great expectation? How do we long for the return of Jesus? I mean, we're going to see that in verse 10, but constantly Paul is basically pointing that this church to the coming of Jesus. And there's this mindset of look for Jesus, long for Jesus, wait for Jesus, look forward to the coming of Jesus. It's easy to get dismissive in our hearts or cynical in our hearts, and he's saying, no, no, keep it up, keep looking for Jesus. So he's correcting some bad doctrine, he's affirming his love, he's also kind of giving, again, he's arguing for his leadership and who he is among them. Here's, you could say, the author, the audience, the agenda. Now here's what I I just pull out. Paul obviously begins his books in a very similar way. He's just like, grace and peace. You know, you, you have the grace of Jesus and the peace of Jesus. He used these two Greek words for, for grace and peace. Grace was, or charis in Greek, was a way they'd greet each other. They'd say, charis, grace, is a way that they'd greet each other. Peace, he uses the Greek word, but it was more of a Jewish way to greet. They'd say, shalom. But these Jewish believers, who are Greek believers as well, they're Jewish Greek believers, they would also use the Greek word of it. So Paul's just using a very common phrase in grace and peace. Obviously, it's been said you'll never know the peace of God until you've experienced the grace of God. You and I will never know the peace of God until we experience the grace of Jesus. It's grace and peace. This is the peace. It's, it's actually speaking of less of an inner peace and more of just being connected to God. It's a peace that comes from us being connected to him. It's a peace that you could say people, everyone's searching for. Every alcoholic that is searching for that peace for one more drink, it's found in Jesus. I mean, for anyone who's looking for just you know, peace, but they're going from person to person, relationship to relationship. This is the peace that the, the heart of man and woman is just crying out for. Paul just says, hey, grace and peace. Now, in verse 2 through 10, Paul really shows us what it looks like to be a genuine follower of Jesus. It's like, how do I know? How do I know I'm the real deal? How do they know they're the real deal? I mean, Paul was there for three weeks, and Paul's like, listen, I want you to know that you guys are the real deal. I've, I've seen these things myself. I've heard about you, your faith. Who you are has gone to like the known world. Philippi and Achaia, it's gone to the Corinthians. Like your faith is exactly the kind of faith we want to see in the churches. So as we walk through the text today, if you can, like how do we know we're the real deal? Here's the three points. Number one is this. Uh, how do you know you're the real deal? When the gospel radically changes you, when other people see the gospel change in you, and when you leave everything for Jesus. How do you and I know we're the real deal. How do you know you're really 
Chosen by God, as Paul uses that phrase. Here's the first one, number one. When the gospel radically changes you. Let's read verse two again. Verse two, here's what Paul says. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Listen, how, here's how you know you're the real deal. When the gospel radically changes you. I want you to see what God did in this church in just a few weeks. Paul's like, we can't stop thanking God for you. I mean, you think about that. You think about what Paul was writing to the Corinthians. We studied this for like six months. A lot of it is like, man, you guys are like kind of a thorn in my flesh. It's been hard. And he's saying for this church, he goes, we cannot stop thanking God for you. I mean, your faith has kind of gone just to the known world. You're an example to everyone around you. There was radical change that took place amongst the believers in in Thessalonica. This is so important for us. The characteristics he uses, too, I mean, are something that we've heard before, but we have to point out. Notice how he breaks this down. Here's the marks, you could say, of election, the marks of someone who stands out, being a genuine follower of Jesus. What does he say? Look again. We'll see it. He says, your work of faith, labor of love, or in steadfastness or patience of hope. Faith, hope, and love. He goes, look at these things we see in you. I mean, you guys, there's this labor of love among you. There's this work of faith among you. You have this patience when it comes to hope, unlike any others. Um, this has been called the, this the three virtues of Christianity. I mean, this is really that inward, it's inward beliefs and inward lifestyle, inward attributes that are expressed outwardly. He says, faith, hope, and love. Obviously, this is what Paul said to the Corinthians. He's basically pointing them to these attributes. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, you know this verse. He says, and now abide in these three, faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. All right, so let's talk about this. Faith, hope, and love. This is what we should be known for. How do you know the gospel has changed you? How do you know you are a genuine follower of Jesus? Paul points out and says there's faith, hope, and love. Notice also the, the, the characteristics he uses with this. He says your work of faith. Your work of faith. Faith has always kind of communicated this idea of like works. Faith is not just believing. Faith is believing that leads to action. Your work of faith. Uh, we see this idea constantly in the book of James. You guys know this. He's calling out uh, the church and he says, hey, 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 I get it. You have faith. But even demons have faith. James chapter 2, he says, even demons believe in God and they tremble. It's not just your faith. He says, faith without works is dead. Faith was constantly communicated with this idea of works. Again, it's not that works that save you. You're saved by grace through faith, not of works. But this faith in Jesus will lead to works. And what happened is that happened with the the Thessalonians. Their work of faith. He's like, I see it. I see your faith. You don't just tell me you have faith. I think it's really easy. The church is a lot of words. Like, think about it. We talk in small groups. I'm talking. We sing. Like, a lot of, like, Christian community things are, like, word-based. It can't just be that. It has to be action-based. Our faith must be seen. Like, it must be seen. It's not just, again, we, we sing, we talk, we pray, beautiful things. But your, your faith will be seen. That's why we try to give opportunities, whether it's serving or outreach. It's like, it has to be seen. Faith must be seen. I think we know this, but it takes a lot of work when it comes to our faith. Just will take, it'll take some work. You know, I, but I love this idea. 
In John chapter 6, Pharisees came to Jesus one day, and they had this total, this total misunderstanding of faith. They say, Jesus, John 6, what must we do? What works must we do to have eternal life? Jesus responds in John 6, 29. Jesus said, uh, he answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom the Father has sent. They're saying, what are the works we must do to have eternal life? He goes, no, no, this is the work, singular, you must do, believe. Believe on him whom the Father has sent. You know, again, this is so key to Christianity. We think, what are the works? Jesus goes, no, the only work is faith. Just, this is the work, it's faith. Paul says, I see this work of faith. Next, he says, this labor of love. Um, I think you guys know this, but it's hard to love some people, right? Uh, Don't point fingers, don't like, "Eh," elbow someone. Uh, It's hard to love. He goes, this labor of love. I love how he describes love as labor. Like, it is that. When you think about love, Jesus goes, what is it? Who cares if you love those who love you? Anyone can do that. Do you love your enemies? Do you love those who curse you? Do you love those who despise you? You know, when it comes to being a genuine follower of Jesus, I'll say one of the first things I noticed in my life when I really just surrendered my life to Jesus, said, Jesus, I'm all in. One of the, the first changes I began to see was people like I hated, people I, did, I couldn't be in the same room with. I started praying for. I started talking to them differently. I started viewing them differently. It wasn't overnight by any means. But one of the first things I saw was like, wow, this person, I couldn't even like be in the room with them. Now I can look them in the eyes. Like now I can actually talk to them. Now I can actually care about how they're doing and how their soul is with God. There's this idea that love, it, it, it takes labor sometimes takes work sometimes. Actually, John talks about this in 1 John 3, 17. He says, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? John connects love to, again, or connects love just to labor. Like, it's going to cost, it's going to take some time, energy, money, this labor of love. He goes, we see this work of faith in you. We see this labor of love in you. We see that. And then he says this patience or steadfastness of hope. Faith, Hope and love. Hope is an interesting word for Christians. Hope is different than the way the world views hope. We're not like, I hope Jesus comes back again. That's true, but it's not how we might use it. Like a little girl might say, I hope I get a bike for Christmas. That's not how we're using the word hope. Hope is this confidence assurance of things to come. Like we have this hope, this assurance of things to come. He, he describes it though, it's, it's patience. We need patience with it. You know, because obviously when you, the hope is deferred, it, it makes the heart sick, the Bible talks about. Sometimes you're like hoping, hoping, hoping when is it going to happen? The idea is like for us, we're going to be patient in it, but we have this confident assurance of really Jesus' return, of us being with him. Our hope is much different than the world's hope. You know, we have this, such a confidence in it. You know, I think about like if two people are working in a factory, right? Let's just say two women are working in the factory. And they have a terrible job, mundane job, doing the same thing over and over again for year in, year out. And imagine one's getting paid $30,000 a year, and one's getting paid $30 million a year. And the person's making $30,000 goes, this is so mundane. Like, this is awful. Like, right? Like, this is terrible. The other person's like, no, it's not so bad. Like, how do you think that? Well, it's like, well, you know, I know it's, gonna, I know it's coming. I know the paycheck that's coming. Like, what do you mean? Like, they have a hope of something great to come. They have this confidence and hope that something incredible is coming. You see, we don't just hope, like, things will work out. We have this confidence assurance, this confident assurance of Jesus' coming in such a way that we can live out our daily life in a different way. It's like Jesus is coming. It doesn't matter what might be falling apart around me. It doesn't matter what I have or don't have. There's this hope that we have that is very unique. As Romans 5.5 5 says, it says, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Our hope does not disappoint. Because the Holy Spirit has just poured out the love of God in our lives. You go, man, I have this hope. Paul says, Thessalonians, you've been radically changed. You have faith. 
You have love. You have this hope. And this hope, he says, is in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus. It's in something tangible, physical. It's not in some dream. It's in the real person of Jesus. You have this hope in Jesus. It is so different. And here's why I, I bring this up. People have called this section mark, the marks of election because in verse 4, Paul says something that maybe the, you and I struggle with, but he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, you're loved by God, that he has chosen you. That he has chosen you. Your faith, hope, and love. It's a sign, it's a mark that God has chosen you. That you're loved by God, God has chosen you. Let's talk about this. When it comes to the doctrine of election, it's been said in many ways. You try to explain election away you lose your soul. You try to explain it, you might lose your mind. There's a side of it where when it comes to this topic, it might frustrate some of us. Like, I don't understand this. I don't know if we'll have a full, deep, rich understanding of election this side of heaven. I just don't know if we'll fully have a, a just complete understanding of this. You and I have to know that there is a God who loves us, and salvation begins with God, and, and God chose us. I can't get away from that. I can't get away from John 15, 16, where Jesus says, for you not have chosen me, I have chosen you. You know, there's something about just God's love and God's choosing that I don't fully grasp. I embrace it. I walk in it. You know, I think of what Ironside, this guy, this famous author from like a century ago, basically said, uh, you know, imagine a door. And on the door, uh, it's, it says, something. he quotes Jesus, whosoever will, let him come unto me. You're like, okay. So I come to Jesus. I walk through the door. On the other side of the door, it says, for you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. And you're like, uh, okay, what do I do with that? You know, I think that's probably a good example of it. Here's this doorway, and Jesus says, come. Whosoever will, come. You're like, okay, I'll come. And you look back, and it's like, but you've not chosen me, I've chosen you. And you're like, okay. I don't know what happened here. I, I think there's a, a side of election. I, I love that just side where it's like, okay, there's a sense of responsibility in this. There's a sense of, I, 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 Jesus, I, I fought to follow you. I surrender. I, I just give it all to follow you. But then there's this reality that God has chosen me. And rather than try to fight that or argue against it, I just try to embrace both realities. Where you go, I don't know if I'll fully get it. I'm not here to argue debate. I, I love that over the years I used to participate in these arguments. And I just go, you know what? I just want to embrace the love of God. I want to embrace God's sovereignty, and I want to embrace the responsibility God has placed on me and placed on you. So just a couple thoughts on this. We'll just put them up here about salvation. First of all, salvation begins with God. We've got to know that. Salvation begins with God, not with you. Don't, don't think like, I chose God first. Like, I was like, no, you didn't. All right, salvation begins with God. Ephesians 1, that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. But next thought, salvation involves God's love, obviously. God's so love he gave. God's salvation begins with God's love. Salvation does involve faith. We cannot get away from that. There's this element that salvation involves faith. Again, you've been saved by grace through faith, not of works, which you boast. It involves faith. Like there's a sense where you must place your faith on Jesus. You must take ownership and responsibility of that. Uh, salvation involves the Trinity. I love how one author describes it. When you read Ephesians 1, it's like, the, God the Father chose me before the foundation of the world. Jesus, you could essentially say, chose us on the cross, and the Holy Spirit chose us when we believed on him. <laughs> like, there's this element of the Trinity involved in our salvation that we just see throughout scriptures. And then lastly, uh, salvation changes the life. And this is what we're getting at here in Thessalonians. It's like your life has been dramatically changed. Look at these marks. Look at the difference in you. Love, faith, hope. These things that are in you are so different than the world. Yes, the world has some semblance and idea of love of hope, of faith, but not to this extent. Not the way Paul describes, not the way the Bible describes faith, hope, and love. Obviously, the world can love, the world can have some element of faith and some element of hope, but not the biblical understanding of these three, these three attributes of faith, hope, and love. Not to the depth that the, that the Bible describes it. Paul actually, here's I think where the key is. It's in the end of verse five, or middle of verse five. Look at verse five. Paul says it this way. Verse five. He says, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. He goes, God has chosen you. When the word of God came to you, it came with power, it came with the Holy Spirit and full conviction. Like something took place in your life that day. 
I want you to think back to the time, when, however you want to view it, when you, when you believed on Jesus. Maybe you realized that God just grabbed hold of you. I don't know if it's a very emotional thing for you. I don't know if it's a very intellectual thing for you. I think sometimes both, both different groups of people like fear the other. Like, I want you to know, like, when God grabs hold of you, it's an emotional experience. That's okay. Emotions are not bad. Some people are like, I don't know if you can, like, get them emotionally into it. You can get emotionally out of it. I don't know. God, I'm told to love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Like, I'm told to love God with all of me. I think when you actually encounter God, there is some sort of emotional experience that happens, but it's also more than that. Sometimes you're just, like, disturbed. I don't know if you've, like, been around, like, the church, maybe even right now. You're like, I don't know if I believe this, but I feel like God speaks to me at times. If God's probing me, I don't like it. I don't want it. You feel almost like this great disturbance happening in your life. Like, God wants to change things around, but I don't want him to let him change things around. Sometimes you're, like, intellectually kind of arguing with God, and you might be in that moment now even. But you realize, like, there's something about when you believe on Jesus or when God really just kind of grabs hold of your heart. There's something about this deep conviction he talks about. There's something about this power that transforms and changes your life. And it's one of those things I want us to think, I think about. You know, I've talked to people who've used it like, this way. Like, you know, I'm deciding to maybe take up Christianity. Or I'm thinking about maybe being, it's like, you realize at some point in time, it's not about you taking up Christianity, but God taking you up. Like, at some point in time, you're like, I don't, I can't, I can't not follow Jesus. Like, what is that? Like, I can't not be a part of this. It's probably less even of my will, but like, God is doing something in my life where there's no other option. It's Peter and John 6 where, where Peter says, Jesus, where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. Remember, Jesus like, Peter, disciples, do you want to leave? He goes, we have nowhere else to go. Where else can we go? There's something about the gospel where ultimately you're like, I, there's, no, there's no other answers that are satisfying that other than the gospel of Jesus. The problems of pain, suffering, evil, eternity, purpose, meaning, the gospel gives me this framework and understanding that no, nothing else can offer. I love how one person talks about it. The gospel is existentially satisfying and intellectually sufficient, right? It's existentially satisfying. It's like it meets the deepest needs and cravings of my heart to be loved, to be valued, to be heard. I mean, it just satisfies me in every way. But it's also intellectually satisfying. I mean, the resurrection of Jesus is intellectually satisfying. The idea of dealing with sin and just purpose or hell or eternity. Honestly, when you think about justice and like what happens to those who just did crazy things, terrible, terrible things, they just die, that's it? Like it's also intellectually satisfying. The, the point is, he's basically saying, when you heard the gospel, it came with power, the Holy Spirit, deep conviction. There was just radical conviction. You know, C.S. Lewis used to have this radio show in England. You know, C.S. Lewis, the author of Chronicles of Narnia and so many other books, uh, but he had this, ba this radio show. It's based, I think it's called, What Are We to Do with Jesus? It's just, that was the title of like, the radio show, What Are We to Do with Jesus? And he has this you know, quote from on air. He says this. We'll put the quote up here. He says, Jesus says, no one can reach ultimate reality except through me. If you try to ret retain rights over your own life, inevitably it will be ruined. But only if you give your life away completely to me, Will you be saved? If you're afraid of me, when you hear this call, I will look the other way when I come again as God without disguise. If there's anything keeping you from me, whatever it is, throw it away. If it's your eye, pluck it out. If it's your hand, cut it off. Nothing, nothing is worth losing me. Come to me. Whatever your load, even your sin, I will take it off of you. I am life. I am resurrection. Uh, I, I am resurrection. I am resurrection. Don't be afraid. I've overcome the universe. Eat me, drink me, I'm life itself. Apart from me, there is none. What are we to make of Christ? That's not the issue. The issue is entirely, what does he intend to make of us? How do we know the gospel has come to you when you start to realize the issue is not, what am I going to do with Jesus?
You, I think for so long we do think that. What am I going to do with Jesus? When you realize it's kind of out of my hands, what is Jesus going to do with me? There, there's a side of this where you kind of realize, like, Jesus says some pretty thought-provoking things. Eat of me, drink of me, follow me, cough your hand. Anything that's in the way of me and you, get rid of it. Basically, there's a strong call, this, this, like, totalitarian kind of, like, arguments from Jesus. Like, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will live. Jesus has so many of these things. Like, what are we to do with Jesus? It's not even the question. It's almost like there comes a point in time where, like, I just, I, there's nothing else to turn to. Jesus, like, you've radically changed me. You've done something in me. I can't even force this or fake this. It's like you just captured my heart. Again, I don't want to get too maybe personal, but there's a side of this where there came a point in time in my life where you're like, Jesus, I've tried so hard to follow you. I've tried so hard to do these things. And when you kind of let it go and say, you know what, I'm going to rest in the finished work of the cross. I'm going to rest in who you are and what you've done. You, you kind of just feel this new motivation, this like new sense of strength. Like I don't have to follow Jesus. Like I get to follow Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like I don't have to do these things. God transforms my heart where I want to do these things. It's almost like you can't explain it other way than like there's no other option. There's no other solution. See, how do you know you're the real deal? When the gospel radically changes you, Paul is saying. And here's the second thing. We'll keep going in verse 6. When other people, number two, when other people see the gospel change in you. When other people see that change in you. How do you know this is real? When other people say, I see this change in you. Look at verse 6. Paul goes on to say, verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. How do you know this is real? When the gospel, when other people see the gospel change in you. Paul uses some pretty descriptive language here. And like, I want us to like stay with this. Think of what Paul says here. Look at the first phrase. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. I think you know the gospel's taken root in your life, and you're like, I just want to follow Jesus and follow people that are following Jesus. Like, I, there's something about imitating. Like, my son is six. I see him do it. My daughter's two, right? Where it's like, they, they imitate. My daughter imitates my son, and it's so funny to me. Like, whatever he says to us, she says to us. I'm like, you don't even know what you're talking about. But like, he's doing it. Just She does it, right? She just kind of jumps on it. There's something about early on in our faith. Like, I just want to follow Jesus and follow those who are following Jesus. I want to learn from them. How do they do life? How do they do marriage? How do they do relationships? How do they follow Jesus day to day? See, what happened with them was, I just want to follow Jesus and follow Paul's example and these other leaders' examples, Paul's like, look at, look at the change. You want to imitate. There's a real change in you. You want to be like Jesus. You're longing to be like Jesus. No one's forcing this on you. You want to imitate. Next he says, you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Again, when this church was birthed, like all hell broke loose and there's riots and people trying to murder them. And he's like, you receive this word with so much joy. Like you were in the midst of affliction and suffering and you're like, yes, we have the word of God. You had this joy and this unique re like relationship with the Holy Spirit in that moment. Just the Holy Spirit overwhelmed you with God's joy. You know, there's something about this. I think for so long in my life, I wanted to fight the word. I misunderstood the word. I didn't like the word. The Bible to me was just a big book of rules and things you got to do and don't got to do. And it's just too much for me. And there came a point in time when you're like, wait a second. This is not trying to, God is not some kill joy, trying to steal joy from my life. Actually, God knows how I should live, and if I live in his word and live in his way, there'll be more joy. Like it says in Psalm, uh, Psalm 16, in his presence there is fullness of joy. Here is the idea. There comes a point in time where you just receive the word of God with joy. You're like, oh my gosh, God, this is just, it's like food for my starving soul. It's water for my parched soul. Like it's everything I've ever needed. You receive it with joy. As they're suffering, as they're being persecuted uh, in Thessalonica, they just received it with joy. 
He's like, don't you see the change? Everyone saw this in you. Like you received the word. Jesus said in John 1, 12, as many as receive me, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. There's something about just receiving the word with joy. It's like, I don't want to fight against this anymore. I don't want to act like this doesn't work anymore. I don't want to act like this is old and outdated and not for me. No, he said, you received the word of God. Next in verse 7, he says, you became an example to all the believers. All of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, like all of them saw you and you became their example. Paul did this in Corinth. In Corinth, we studied it, but he's like, hey, look, look at the Thessalonians. Look what God is doing among them. He's like, you've been an example to everyone around you. I mean, this is how you know there's deep and real change. That you, your life, you're following Jesus, like there's deep change when people say, I want to follow that. Hey, you're walking with God, will you teach me? How do you do that? How do you walk with him? How do you pray? How do you read? How, how do you do community? How do you do life? He's like, there's an example. You've been an example to everyone. Uh, verse 80 says, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. I think this is the greatest compliment you could pay anyone. Like, you're, as you follow Jesus, we don't need to say anything. Everyone sees it. We don't need to defend you. Everyone sees it in you. We don't need to say anything. Like, your life is loud enough. How you live, how you love, how you serve, everyone sees that. We don't need to defend you. This has gone out everywhere. Your life has been a billboard for Jesus. You're a walking billboard for Jesus. He's like, it just goes everywhere. This is what a genuine follower of Jesus looks like. This is what he's describing and saying to them. And notice this, there's this dynamic where they receive the word and the word has gone forth from them. In verse six and eight, we'll throw it up there, but you see this dynamic. He says, you receive the word and the word of the Lord and your faith has gone out. There comes this point in time where like we're receivers of the word of God and we're transmitters. We must receive it and transmit it. You've received it, but it's also gone out from you. Like, good job. Hey, you've received the word. Let it go out from you. Let your faith go out from you. There's something about receiving the word of God and, and really also giving out the word of God. Think about this. He just described election, that you're chosen by God, that we see these marks in you, but also the word of God is going forth from you. I think that it's very important when we talk about that topic of election. We're like, so what are we doing in this? Why do I need to be a part of this? Because the word of God also goes out forth from us. I mean, Warren Wearsby said the best. He says, the person who says God will save those who he wants to save and he doesn't need my help understands neither election nor evangelism. The person's like, God's just going to save whoever he wants. God's going to do whatever he wants to do. Well, you, know, you neither understand election or evangelism then. You receive the word, the word also goes out from you. The world sees that. They see your faith, they see the word going out from your life, you receive it, and you also transmit it. Here's the question, obviously. Do people see the gospel change in you? Like, do they see that in you? Do they see the hope that you have, the love that you have? Do they see your work of faith? Not that we're always going to get it right, not that we're going to be sinless in the process, but that, do, you, do you see this idea of like, well, we see it in you. We see that Jesus Christ has radically, radically grabbed hold of your life, and he's doing something in you. And this is so key for all of us. Jesus said, people will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. They'll know you're my disciples by your fruits. Just this idea of like, people will see the evidence of your faith. I mean, again, we don't want to just be a church that believes the right things, that can check the right box off, that studies the Bible. Like, we want our faith to be known. We want our faith to be seen. We want people to say, I see it personally in you. Amen? I mean, this is so important. We don't want to just know and say the right things. We want to live out and express those things. Paul says, we see this in you. You've been an example to everyone. And here's the last thing, which I think verse 9 and 10 is so key. You want to spend some time on verse 9. Listen to what he says, verse 9. He says, for they themselves report concerning us, the kind of reception we had among you, listen, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, 
whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Here's how you know you're the real deal. Number three, when you leave everything for Jesus. He says in verse nine, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We saw this take place in you. Not just physical idols. The Thessalonians didn't really have physical idols like might might think ancient practices had. He's actually referring to like idols, meaning uh, maybe things that have taken the place of God. Whether that's sex, money, power, authority. He's like, we've seen you turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Like you get it. You've actually abandoned all those counterfeit gods for the one true God. An idol is essentially that. An idol is a counterfeit God. It basically demands our attention. It demands our praise. It promises a lot and really gives you nothing in return. If you think about an idol, whether that's success, money, whether that's just being seen and heard, maybe that's intimacy, whatever that might look like, you think about what an idol does is it promises you a lot. Hey, I will, I will meet those needs, those longings of your heart. Like, try it. Try me out. I'll meet those deep, those deep needs. And really, it promises a lot, but in return gives nothing. You, you think about just how, how constantly, I, I, myself, I fall into this trap. It's like Jesus is on the throne of my life, and then I get sidetracked with something, some, some just whatever it might be. It just kind of takes that place, and you're like, oh, God, help me again. I think there's obviously this idea that we, we, at one point in time, turn from those things to God, but there's this constant reality of turning from idols back to Jesus. You know, I, lo- I love how um, John Calvin put it. He basically just said, our heart is like an idol factory, constantly producing idols. Like, that's what my heart does. It just constantly produces new idols, new things to repent of, new things to say, God, I surrender this over to you. He goes, you guys have been an example. Listen, you've turned from these idols to the living and true God. Here's, again, how you know when you've left everything for Jesus. When you say, Jesus, nothing is more important to you. Nothing is more important to me than you. You are the most important thing in my life. Like Jesus, all I want is you because I know this thing will not satisfy me. And again, we believe the lies all the time. I know that there's these little lies that go into our mind or heart like Jesus won't satisfy you. Jesus is enough. This relationship will. This job will. Then you attain that or you get that and you're like, no, that didn't do it. Well, yeah, because you need to have it in this way or with this person and your heart constantly moves on from idol to idol to idol when in reality, Jesus is that one true thing that will satisfy the deep longing of our heart. I mean, that's just who we're made for, who we're made by. And Paul's like, you get it. You've turned from these things to serve the living and true God. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, wrote about idols. He says, listen, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, uh, to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. It's if I lose this, what am I even living for? If I lose my money, if I lose my bank account, if I lose my friendships, if I lose, lose this job, then what is there to even live for? And he's like, that's, that's your idol. That's your God. That's what you've been living for. It's just constantly taking up your imagination. It's when you leave here, what does your mind think about? He's like, that's what you're really serving. That's what you're really living for. That's been your true God all along. Uh, Spurgeon wrote about just this, this section of scripture and about the Thessalonians. And here's what he said. He said, everybody asks why. What happened to these Thessalonians? These people have broken their idols. They worship the one God. They trust in Jesus. They are no longer drunken, dishonest, impure, contentious. Everybody talked of what had taken place among these converted people. Oh, for conversions, plentiful, clear, singular, and manifest, that so the word of God may sound out. Our converts are our best advertisements and arguments. He goes, our convert, that change is the best advertisement, the best argument for Jesus being who he says he is. He's like, you've turned from idols to serve the living and true God. 
this is one of the best advertisements for the gospel of Jesus, how he really does change lives, how he really does work. That's why we have people share their stories. That's why we have people share that in groups and know each other's lives. Like, look what Jesus has done. Look what he's doing. It really does work. The gospel of Jesus does work. This is what we want to just communicate and show and express. We have the greatest message ever given. We have the greatest narrative there is, that there's a God who loved us and made us and is pursuing us and wants deep relationship and intimacy with us, that you're made for more than just what we see with the eye, that you're made for with an eternal perspective in mind, that God has eternity in mind for you, we have the greatest story that there is. And he's like, guys, you get it. You've, you've, you've experienced that deep conviction. You've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. You've turned from idols to the true and living God. Like there's radical change. It's a real change in you. You've left everything for Jesus. You've realized that this is the best thing you could have. It's the rich young ruler who goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what are the commandments I must obey or keep to have eternal life? Jesus lists them off, and he goes, okay, I've done those things. He goes, what else am I lacking? Jesus is like, well, go sell everything you have and follow me. And it says, and that rich man went away very sorrowful. Why? Because he loved those things more than Jesus. So there comes a point in time where you realize, Jesus, maybe I think you're, I say you're preeminent, I say you're above everything, I say you're number one, but in reality you're not. There comes a point in time where Jesus is like, are you willing and ready to leave all and follow me? The Thessalonians were. They, they left, they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And how he closes is so key in verse 10. He says, and you waited for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. They have this expectation of Jesus' coming. The thing I love about this church, and we'll get into it more later, is they didn't like despise the coming of Jesus, didn't freak him out. They're actually brokenhearted. They thought they maybe missed it. And, and they, they, they actually loved and longed the idea of Jesus returning. He's like, Paul's like, I got to commend you. You just want to be with Jesus. Again, it's not so much like I want to believe the right things. I want to know what are the boxes I must check off to go to heaven. It's like, you just want to be with Jesus. This is so important. We talked about this last week when we started the Exchange 101, but one of my favorite quotes ever when it comes to this, a guy named Samuel Rutherford said, listen, if I were to go to hell, if I were to go to heaven, he started off, if I were to go to heaven and Jesus was not there, that would be hell to me. But if I were to go to hell, and Jesus was there, that would be heaven to me. Why? Because Jesus is heaven. We, we think of heaven just as this place. It's so much more. He goes, no, I just want Jesus. He goes, you guys get it. You're waiting for his son from heaven. You have the right outlook. You have the right mindset that he'll deliver you from the wrath to come. You know what's bizarre? Not even Christians. I think the whole world knows there's wrath to come. And they're doing everything they can to try to kind of escape that wrath or justify their existence or justify being a good person. I think the world knows, like, you know what? Maybe I might give an account for my life one day. And so they're doing everything they can to avoid the wrath to come. And they'll try everything other than Jesus. They know something doesn't sit right. They know that everything that was done in dark will be brought to light. And like we fight against that. And I think there's this desire in all of us to try to get away from the wrath to come when he goes, no, no, it's only Jesus who can deliver us from this wrath to come. There is wrath to come. There's a judgment of God, the justice of God. And that is good. That is beautiful. We should long for the justice of God. But only Jesus can deliver us from this wrath. Only he can deliver us from what's to come. Listen, here's how we want to just close our time. We just want to think on Jesus. Praise Jesus. We want to look at this time and say, God, help us not just study this. Help us be like this. Let there be radical change in our church. Let there be a longing for Jesus' return. I pray that your neighbors and family members and friends look at your life and say, wow, I see Jesus in you. This seems to be working. Like, please, I want to know more. I want to hear more. Like, how are you doing this? Life is so exhausting and it's so hard, but there's something in you. What is that? You're like, that is Jesus. And he's delivered me from the wrath to come and he is enough and he satisfies the longing of my heart. Nothing can or will satisfy me other than Jesus.
And our hope is that we be a church that centers on the person of Jesus. And we say, you know what, um, Jesus, we're going to look for you, long for you. We're going to live for you. We want the world to see you in us. And so listen, church, again, as we just walk through this book, walk worthy. Walk worthy. Let us be this church like the Thessalonians who are known for our work of, of faith, our labor of love, our patience of hope where people can see our example and say, wow, Jesus is with them and in them. That is our prayer. We can't fake that. We can't force that. But we're going to pray and ask God to do that in us. Amen? We'll just pray really quick and just spend some time seeking the Lord. Father, we just want to thank you. We want to praise you. There is no one like you. God, we thank you just for this truth that you have delivered us from the wrath to come by your son, Jesus. God, we thank you. We thank you that uh, we don't have to fear what is to come, that we can look forward to what is to come. And that's just knowing you and being with you. So God, I just ask as we just even end, if there's things in our life, Jesus, if there's idols that we have not repented of, if there's idols we're, we're still serving, if there's beliefs about money or sex or relationships or power or whatever it might be, Jesus, that is taking your place that we just surrender that to you now, God, I just pray for everyone in this place that they would turn from their idols to serve you, the living and true God. God, you are that solution, that source, the, the only one that will satisfy us. We just want to thank you. And God, be with us now, we ask, as we just sing to you, as we worship you, that God, you would be just on your throne in our lives, that we would, again, just take this time to own, to repent, just to surrender these things to you, Jesus. You are enough. We thank you, God, in just your precious name. Church, why don't you just stand with me as we just close out? We just want to end with some worship putting Jesus back in his rightful place. Amen? All right, let's worship.